We are now in a new realm from that music, you can tell. We are now traveling through space. Hi, good morning. I've got a, 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 a different way to intro today. I want to read you some names. And I want to see if you can make any correlation between the names. I realize this might be early for some of you. You barely got your coffee in you. My compassion to you, I'm going to do it anyway. Here we go. I'm going to, I'm going to list these names, see if you can figure out where the connection might be. Here we go. Tom Brady, Tina Turner, Rembrandt, Thomas Jefferson, LeBron James, Albert Einstein, Paul McCartney, Simone Biles, John Lennon, Pele, Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson, Tony Hawk, Roger Federer, Abraham Lincoln, Serena Williams, Muhammad Ali, Marie Curie, Leonardo da Vinci. I could, I could go on. What do all of these individuals have in common? You might have recognized a few names, some athletes, some thinkers, some, some politicians, some artists, some philosophers. What do, what do all of these people, yeah, some of them are famous, some of them are su- successful, certainly we, we know their names. You may not have known Tony Hawk, but can I get a witness? Great skater. Come on. Anybody? Okay. But they're athletic, successful, maybe some of them are rich. What do they all have in common? Because some of them are truly, you could say, masters of their craft, past, present, future. So what do all of these folks have in common? I got one word for you. Goat. Goat. No, I'm not talking about the, the furry creatures that eat anything like tin cans and such. Although, I will admit, I do love the fainting goats because those are funny. If you've ever seen a video of those, you spook them and they just fall over. That's funny. I would like to own one. Do not get me one. I I live in town. But goats, goats, greatest, what is it? Greatest of all time. Greatest of all time. These people that I listed. Greatest of all time. That's quite a feat to be considered the greatest of all time. I mean, I don't know that I would want that title. That feels like a lot to live up to. Greatest of all time. I didn't even like being the best man at one of my friend's weddings a while ago. That seems like a, a, a lot. Best man, I don't, I don't know that I have that sort of, that cr- you know, clout to be the best man. But think about this. Who, who is the greatest of all time to you? Whether it be greatest writer, athlete, whatever... Greatest person of all time to you. I want you to do something here in a few minutes since we're all together now. Even online, we see you. Uh, find someone near you or someone near you here in person. Lean over to them, and I want you to take a few moments to say, who do you think is the greatest of all time? Greatest person of all time, go. Greatest of all time, come on. Greatest guitar player. Greatest basketball player. Is it LeBron James? I don't know. Greatest of all. You online? Yeah, you got that. So greatest person who ever lived, that's quite a title. You know, and the thing is, we're, we're, we're in the faith community. We're in sort of religious circles. I mean, we, you could consider what we're doing today. We're kind of in that category, I guess. And so you might hear this often in your life. Well, what's the, what's the greatest religion? What's the right religion? Who's the greatest religious teacher of all time? You might hear that. Now, oftentimes, I'm surprised nobody's yelled his name out yet. 
Who's the greatest of all time in here? Come on. Jesus. I knew you were going to say that. But you know, not, not every circle that we're in, that we travel in, might have that same opinion. It depending on where you grew up at or your, your, kind of your background or even your religious persuasion. You may not say that, that same name for everybody. The thing is, both now and in the, even in the first century, people struggled with what's the greatest? What do we really got to do to get to know God? If there is a God, who, who could tell us how to get close to him? If there is a God, who could tell us how to hear him, see him, be with him? All kinds of opinions out there. And as we kick off this series, we're going to be looking at the fact that, yes, indeed, Jesus is greater than. He's the greatest of all time. And we're trying to answer that question, could, could Jesus really be that? Because in the first century, as in now, people question. People question, really, is it really just Jesus of Nazareth, or, or is there other things out there? And so, not only now, but even in the first century, they were struggling with these issues of who's spiritually the best? Who could really get us close to God? And we're going to be looking at the fact that Jesus, when he arrived on the scene, he blew everything out of the water. When he arrived, he said, actually, of all the ways that humans have tried to get close to God, let me give you the insight. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. He boiled it down to, to that, that few statements in Matthew 22. And if you add to that Matthew 28, which is what we call the great commission is to go out into all the world and tell people that very thing that Jesus is the answer to our sin he's the answer to hope he's the answer to all of our need for forgiveness and, and hope and purpose and, and the way to get close to God he asks us to go do that so in those few statements Jesus shows once and for all he is everything and as we'll discover he truly is I'm Pastor Ben I'm glad you're here with us if this is your first Sunday welcome we are glad that you are here with us why do we meet on Sundays well, we meet on Sundays because a couple thousand years ago, Jesus of Nazareth was born in a miraculous way, lived a perfect life. We say this often. He lived a perfect life. He did great things. He taught amazing things. He did miracles. And then he was killed on a Roman cross. But three days later on a Sunday, he rose from the dead and that tomb was empty. And that changed Western culture and human history forever. And that's why many of us are in this room, lifting up Jesus on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, because that tomb was empty, and he's been a game changer. And, 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 and if, he, he's, if Jesus isn't your game changer today, I pray that today would be the day. You'd say, yes, I want him to be my game changer. Let's lean in and pray today, and my message is very simple today. Jesus is the preeminent. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your love and faithfulness, your mercies that are new every morning. We lean into that. Father, we lean into your word. Speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. May we leave this place changed and, and, and ready to make a difference uh, in our world with, with your great love. So, Father, we lean into you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Find, find the book of Colossians and whether you got that on device or uh, I actually find these study guides pretty helpful. There's lots of room to take notes and that sort of thing. And, and you, can, you can highlight and underline things. I've done that a few times. But find that in, in, uh, in your printed Bible. I encourage you, if you have a printed Bible, you can bring that. Uh, that's a cool thing. You can take notes on that on, on your own, on your own uh, time right there. We're going to look at uh, chapter 1, and we're going to read just the first few verses. And as we get into this letter, I think you're going to find it's a bit like condensed milk. There's a lot crammed in 
to a very short four chapters. A lot is in here. You're almost like, well, I don't know, this is so much stuff here. It's too thick. I need to water it down a little bit. We don't need to water it down. But it's, it's condensed. There's a lot going on in here. And a lot of it is addressing some things that I think are appropriate to our time as well as what was happening in the first century. Now, you may wonder, okay, well, when, when was this letter written? It's a great, great question. This letter was written maybe 20 years after Jesus ascended to heaven and the early church had, had begun. So we're talking maybe two decades into the life of the early church. So the Jesus movement, as you might know, is starting now to move away from what would have been traditionally Jewish circles. And now the gospel and the good news of Jesus is traveling to places that are a little bit more pagan, a little, a little less anything to do with Judaism or the temple. Now the kingdom is expanding. The kingdom of Jesus is expanding. And so we're a couple decades in. It's still a fragile time in the early church. And as you'll see in this letter, some of these leaders are really concerned that Christ followers would not get off track because there was all kinds of tempting philosophies and isms out there. We'll talk about them. All kinds of little side, side places we could go and little mysteries and things that were going on. All this, this kind of religious salad was going on. And the early church leaders, like Paul and Timothy are going to do, they're going to drive very very, very, very hard to show that Jesus actually is the preeminent one. In him we have everything we need. And I'm going to read here in a minute. You're like, Ben, you're taking forever. Look, this is a letter. What do we know about letters? What do we know? There's a, there's a two. Right? Letters going to somebody. And it's usually written by somebody. So there's a sense of two different, say, in, individuals or parties that are having this dialogue, this exchange. So, in the Bible, we talk about the Bible as, 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 you know, cover to cover, one unified story that leads to Jesus. We know that, but the Bible isn't just a book, really. It's not even really helpful to call it a book. It's almost like an anthology or, or like a, a library of 66 books. And each one of them is slightly different. So, the book of Proverbs, if you've ever read that, is very different than the book of Psalms. Because one is poetry and one is wisdom literature. Uh, but then there's some history. Right? We, we, we studied the Torah together not too long ago. That's history. So we have these people went here and we, they camped here. So, so that, these are all different genres. Does that make sense? So when we get into the New Testament, especially the letters, we need to see this as a letter. So going from one place to another, there may be some information that we may not know from each of the different places, right? And when you get a letter that's personal to you, there might be some, especially like from a friend, I don't know, when you've had, the last time you got a letter, an actual letter, not a form letter uh, from a realty company trying to get you to sell your house to them, an actual letter, right? It can be an email, I'm progressive. Last time you got an actual letter, usually it was from someone you knew, and maybe they would kind of throw out some things that were kind of personal to you. Well, if that was true for us now, it's probably also true then. So this is a letter, and one more thing I want to I share with you before I read we're going to read the first about 20 verses or so, 23 verses. This is a letter, and what we want to do, and this is something that they, they, they kind of harped on in Bible college and seminary, and that is we want to, we want to read this in a way that we're hearing like the, what they would have heard in the first century. And what they, what they want us to do, and they, they want us to do in biblical interpretations, what's the plain meanings of, of the text? Yes, we know Bible scholars will kind of take each word and do different things with it, and that, there's place for that. But sometimes we just need to almost close our eyes 
and listen as if we were getting this letter for the first time. Without our preconceived notions and our just different little theological ideas, if we would just stop and just let the letter speak to us, sometimes instead of us reading a letter, we can let the letter read us. So let's try to do that. If you're familiar with Colossians, maybe you, you need to close this and just listen to me read. If you're familiar with it, if not, follow along with me. I just got the first couple verses up here. I'm reading from the English Standard version, but your version might be different, and that's okay. Here we go. Are we ready for this? You're like, Ben, you're never going to get to this reading. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Very nice intro. You know? Paul and Timothy, that's the from. The two is what? friends and brothers and sisters in Colossae, right? That seems pretty clear. Let's keep going. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it, heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras is probably the guy that planted the church or helped start it. So Paul and Timothy heard about it, and they're like, that's cool. Verse 9, and so, from the day we heard, again, from Epaphras, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of, of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now this next section I love, and I want to read it to you in a certain way, and you'll see why in a bit. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. A lot going on there. You can kind of see where this is pretty dense. This is, a, if I use my term again, a condensed milk sort of letter. There's a lot going on in these short chapters. I do encourage you to read it. It's not going to take you too long. Read it in a couple versions. In fact, our team, our preaching team, about a month or so ago, when we started preparing for this, we got together and we just started reading it together in different versions, seeing what the different nuances uh, would, would tell us, and it helped us really shape how we were going to teach this. So we get an introduction. We know it's Paul and Timothy, and they're writing to the brothers and sisters, so a new church in Colossae. Uh, that, that town of Colossae used to be a really, really important town in the ancient uh, empire. At that point, it, it maybe had lost some of its, you know, hoodspa, whatever you want to call it. And it wasn't the, the uptown for people to be in. So maybe a smaller rural town, maybe semi-rural like even Dallas. And then, and, but there was this, this group of Christians that were getting together and learning the, the ways of Jesus together. Again, only a couple decades into the beginning of the, of the church. And so Paul and Timothy write them, they're encouraging him. They say several times, we are praying for you. And so they're concerned for him and encourage him to see, keep walking in a manner worthy. So we, we have this letter. And as a letter, again, we're addressing some things. And so as we get into this letter, you might start wondering, there might be a question that rises in your mind, what are they addressing? What is going on here? We get that they want to encourage them. That's fine. But are, some, are there some other things going on in this letter that we need to know? Are, are there some things going on in Colossae that need to be addressed? And sometimes when you have an, a letter, you might have an urgent thing to tell somebody. You ever gotten an urgent letter? Or, or an urgent email, hey, this needs to be taken care of right away. And sometimes that would mean, okay, this is a conversation we need to have sooner than later. And I think that's kind of what's going on here, that they want to, to address some situations and circumstances. And again, we may not know what all of them are, but we do, as we get through the letter, we'll begin to see what some of these things might be. There were things that were happening as the early church expanded away from Jewish strongholds, more like around Jerusalem and Judea. As the church expanded, it got into some territory where Judaism and the temple were, were long far away. And they had all kinds of different shrines and religious teachings and philosophies and all kinds of stuff were going on in, in the empire, in the Roman Empire. And so the church needed to address some of these things. And Paul and Timothy, as leaders, thought we ought to, we ought to jump on this so that people aren't led astray. So there's definitely some issues going on. And again, I, I would encourage you, as you're reading the letter, let the letter read you a little bit. And what I mean by that is as you're reading it, are you walking in a manner worthy? Are you still trusting Jesus? Is he enough for you? Or do you want to throw some other things in? Is, 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 is following Jesus something that you want to continue to do? These are things that I think every Christ follower has to wrestle with, and they were certainly doing that here in Colossae. So Paul and Timothy are concerned. Here's a fun fact. You may find that there's some familiarity with this letter and one that we studied maybe last year or so, Ephesians. Ephesians and Colossians have about half the same stuff. So you'll see some interesting things, some corollaries, some similar conversations. And again, why would that be? You know, Ben, why would a couple letters written by the same people to, say, churches that are started away from 
Jew Jewish strongholds and around philosophies, why would these letters have some of the same things? Well, you could probably figure it out. These cities, Ephesus, Colossae, Laodicea, Athens, as the church expanded in these ancient Roman cities that you can still visit, the philosophies were going around there were kind of butting heads with just Jesus' story. And so these letters do have some similarities, but here's what I love, and we're going we're gonna to have some nerd moments with, I hope you can handle that. Got a couple nerd moments that I want to share with you. In Colossians, you have a bunch of words, over 30 different words that are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Greek words that are unique, and we're going to talk about one of them that probably Paul heard, Paul and Timothy heard as he was in prison, and these Roman soldiers, different garrisons would come in and out and talk about their war stories. And so we get, some, we get some words in Colossians that are found nowhere else. In fact, scholars had to go outside of Scripture to figure out what these words meant because they weren't used in other context. Isn't that interesting that we have some unique words? Okay, and then one more thing. In chapter 1, you heard me do it a little bit around verse 15 to verse 20. Verse 15 to 20, this is what many scholars think was an early church hymn. You know, like Ryan and the team were singing songs up here, lyrics on the screen. If they had screens back then, you might have seen verses 15 through 20 up on the screen because they were singing. Now, I realize we have some language differences. So some of the things that we think of as poetry, you might be reading 15 through 20 and go, I don't, firstborn of the invisible. I don't, I don't see any rhyme in there, Ben. Oftentimes when we think of poetry and hymns, we want to rhyme. We want to you know, Mary had a little lamb. Who's least, you know, we want that. We want the uh, roses are red, violets are blue. We want that. But that wasn't exactly how poetry worked. There were different ways that it worked in the first century. Parallelism was one. Chiasm, which was uh, a way to structure a, a, a poem. And it, had, it made perfect sense to them. So we have an early church hymn. That's why I was trying to sing it a little bit. I hashed it. I realized that. I would like to write a modern version of that hymn. But isn't that cool? We get little glimpses of what they sang to each other. You know, we don't have any audio recordings where we go, well, this is what they sounded like back then. Here's the Psalm 23. We don't know what that sounded like, but we have, we have glimpses. And, and 15 through 20. So we have a hymn. There's another one in this letter. I won't give it away, but there might be another one. There's liturgy in here, things that they would say together out loud. Kind of like sometimes when we say the Lord's Prayer or something like that, or, or we have a point on here and we all say it together. That's liturgy. They would say it together. There's also even things like a household code that was probably the norm for followers of Christ. And, it, and this is a code that they would say, here's how, how Jesus works in marriages. This is how Jesus works with kids and parents. This is how Jesus works in the workplace. And so we'll see actually a household code in here. So lots of different types of literature all contained in this very condensed letter. But the overarching point that we can't forget that Paul and Timothy are trying to make in the mix of all kinds of religions that, that were plaguing all of these cities is that Jesus is enough, he's preeminent, and he is God made visible. And that will be important as we get through this letter. All right, so what was the issue? What were they dealing with? I've hinted at it, and let me just kind of bring, bring that to light here. I think what we were dealing with, and what they were dealing with in the first century, is a kind of convergence of a lot of different philosophies, religions, and isms. And I realize that uh, there are some similarities even to what we're doing in America. Uh, for instance, I, I did a lot of theater when I was in high school. And I was part of something called Gallery Players, which in McMinnville was like a, uh, a community theater. 
Now, some of you may have heard of Gallery Players, but I was part of it. Sometimes the high school that I was part of, we would do uh, productions between the two. But one of the things that you'd find in community theater is people from all kinds of walks of life. And I remember as a freshman, I, can't remember, I won't tell you what play it was. Um, <laughs> you could probably find that out, but I won't tell you what it was. But my first introduction to how many different people from different, I mean, different ethnicities, different religions, were coming and converging to do these plays. And I got a real education. There was this school outside of Sheridan, and some of you may know what it is, I'm not gonna mention it by name, but it's a school that gathered people from all kinds of religious backgrounds. So it would not be uncommon to do a production with someone who's a Sikh. If you've ever met a Sikh, it's someone that doesn't cut their hair, and so they have kind of a, a, a covering. And then we met uh, uh, people that were, were uh, from the Islamic faith, from the Baha'i, faith. We met people from the Jewish faith and people that had no faith. Scientology, that might be a hint to the school that I was by. Anyway, so we had people from all these different kinds of walks, and I got to hear what was going on. I remember having a conversation with one of these particular uh, per, uh, people that had this uh, faith, and I won't say which one it is, you probably figured it out, but this particular religious philosophy, he and I were talking, and we had a three-hour meeting. I was still trying to figure out if I, if I was on the Jesus track or not. It was kind of early before, maybe 13, 14, 15, wasn't really sure, and, and this gentleman and I went round and round for three hours, and his faith said, you know what, I don't know why you want to do the Jesus thing, because it's too exclusive. You only have Jesus. Uh, our faith, we have Jesus and Buddha and Confucius, and we have Muhammad, and, we, and he just kept listing all the people. His faith, it was kind of like this tossed salad of every religion. And he's like, you know, we just believe all roads lead to heaven, and you just need to have faith. It was like this salad of isms, and this was going on in the first century. Now, it was a little different in the first century, but they had Greek and Roman uh, religion, you know, if you, if you remember school, uh, Zeus and Apollos, all these big superhero gods. Well, people actually had shrines to them in these ancient cities. And so you might go and offer a sacrifice in a shrine so that your family would do better, or you don't get killed when you go to war, or you have good crops. This was happening all over the place, but not just that. There was also Greek philosophy. You remember Socrates and all these people from a couple centuries before that, they were teaching all these philosophies. Some of it was Gnosticism, which meant that if you really wanted to get close to God, you had to have some special knowledge, right? If you really want, it's almost like I, I, I think of it as like the snake oil seller of religion and philosophy. The whole idea is if you want to get close to God, you need what I got in this little concoction. It was almost like if you want to get close to God, you've got to have this special, special knowledge, and only a few of us have it. And, oh, it's this exclusive club, and if you want to join, it'll cost you. So we had a Gnosticism going on. We also had Stoicism, another weird ism. And that was a situation where God is perfect, everything spiritual is beautiful, but humanity evil. This dichotomy of a philosophy. Now, hold on a minute. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he was fully man and fully God. You see where that might run into a problem with Stoicism? Well, you can't be both. You can't have the purity of spirit and the evil of flesh. Jesus is God put on flesh. Do you see where there might be an ism problem? So it wasn't just those philosophies. Then you add to that Judaism. Because we still had some, some folks that may, may have lived in Jerusalem at some point. They might have had some J Jewish heritage. So in some of these churches, you had, on top of all those other things, Jewish teachings. 
And Jewish teachings that, well, no, we got it all. We know. We are the special people. So you need to have that little surgery done, and you need to stop eating at certain days, and you can't eat this. And you gotta... So they were adding that on top of everything. Do you see the confusion? It's like a, a big ism of, of religious salad. And if I add one more controversy to that, there were some who believed in deism, which is the idea that, you know, God created everything. They weren't atheists. They believed in God, but it, they didn't really think that God really had much to do. He just kind of created everything and then, like, took a vacation permanently and just said, hey, good luck, bye-bye. And so you had this idea where if you wanted to get close to God, good luck, but you can't because he's, like, way away. And so God is unapproachable. Well, all of these things were brewing in the early churches. And you can see why the leaders were really keen to stop it. Paul, Timothy, many leaders after them, Barnabas, Luke. You, you just add to Peter. They wanted in the early church days to make sure that it does not enter the church. All these isms and religious salad, all these things going on, stop it. Because they wanted to assert that Jesus is everything and he is near. In fact, Paul will even use that argument in the town of Athens. The heart of all these isms. He will say, he's not far. He's not this faraway God that doesn't care. He's actually God put on flesh, and he wants to be in a relationship with you. These were the, the things that Paul and Timothy wanted to assert. This idea that God was not approachable. Paul and Timothy are like, no way, Jose. I don't know how to translate in the Greek, but that's how it would have been. No way, Jose, this is not happening. Well, let's, let's, let's nerd out for just a second. Just indulge me. A couple of words, because I'm a word person. I love these little nuances that you find. It's hard to see in English sometimes, but let's talk about the first one. Do you notice verse 6 and verse 10 have a similar repetition? Now, what do we say about repetition when it comes to Scripture? We know this, right? If, it, if it's repeated, I mean, you have to do this with your kids and grandkids. How many times you got to tell them something? Repeated means it's important, right? There's at least something here we got to take. So verse 6 says, Paul and Timothy, they're saying, hey, all over the world, this gospel good news, churches are being planted, fruit is happening everywhere. And that's a great thing, Colossae, but God also wants you to be producing fruit in your life. So verse 10, so then walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. So this good news gospel is going out. All these churches are being planted. It's good news of Jesus. Fruit is, being, is happening all over the place. And God wants to produce fruit in your life. And, and what is that fruit? Do we know it? Come on. Anybody? There's nine of them that we, that we see listed that say what? Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness. Is that the one I always forget? Self-control. Nine of them. I'm looking over at Bob. I'm like, did I forget that one? What? What? Uh, but I often forget one of them. But that's the kind of fruit was going on. So Paul said it's going on all over the world, and it's part of your assignment here in Colossae. Yes, it's not the up-and-coming town anymore, but it's, it's important for you. So here in Dallas, here in your community, it's important that you bloom where you're planted. God wants you to use you and produce fruit wherever you're at. So that happens. That's repetition. That's the first thing I want to point out. Another one is this one. And one of our preaching team came up with this. Verse 12. I think it's verse 12. There's this, uh, this comment about being qualified. I love that term. You qualified. You made it. Doesn't that feel good just to say? You qualified. You, you, you made it. But Jesus qualifies us. Have you ever been disqualified for something? I, I, I did some track when I was a kid. Very short 
stint, so I don't really like running. But in track, you know, you have the start line, and that's true with the, the high jump and stuff. If you, if, you, if you cross the line before you make your jump, or you jump ahead before the, you know, the, the gun goes off, that's a fault, right? That you've been disqualified. Anybody ever been disqualified for something? Disqualified for a loan, disqualified for a job, and what it is, it does not feel good. And here we have Paul and Timothy saying, look, you, you guys, you have been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Who qualified them? Their great pedigree, uh, their background, their economic status, how many likes they have on Facebook. What qualified them? Jesus qualified by faith. They're qualified. They get to be in. There's a Greek word there, and I don't want to get, get too nerdy for you, but uh, hikanao which means to make sufficient, to render fit. You've been rendered fit to walk around with the kingdom of light. That is good news. You have been qualified. Here's one more. Transferred. Verse 13. Did you catch that? You've been transferred. You've gotten the ticket to a new place to be. You've actually been transferred, like you transferred from one train to another, one place from another. In verse 13, it says that you have been transferred. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his dear son. The word there in Greek is very similar to the word that we get metamorphosis from. This idea that you've changed positions, you've changed natures. You're now in a new kingdom. Now, who did that for you? Did you do it with all your pedigree and how great you are and your economics? Who did it for you? Jesus has qualified you, delivered you, and now he's transferred you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you in to the kingdom of light. He's made the transfer for you. You didn't have to muscle that down. He did it for you. He transferred. We've been transferred. New place. Last one. Verse 19. This is one of those words that you don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. Probably because Paul and Timothy are there in prison. They're hearing some of maybe the soldiers that are taking different shifts. And they're talking about, oh, you won't believe what we did in, you know, in Greece last week. We, you know, it's crazy. Uh, it's uprising. We had to do something. We had to get the ship. And uh, we had to wait till the ship was full. Well, Paul uses a word about how Jesus is actually the fullness. And the word for full is a term from the Navy. And it meant to have everything in the ship that you need. Back then, you had to have a detachment of soldiers. Then you had to have, say, the cooking staff. Then you had to have the people that were rowers or helping with the gear, the, the sails and all that. Then you usually had to have the captain. Maybe you had to have some other people there. Pleiromo is the, the Greek word. It says Jesus is that. He is the full package. You don't need anything else. He's fully equipped for everything. Jesus is the pleiramo, a, a full, complete, the whole kitchen sink. He's the creator, the sustainer of heaven and earth, flesh, spirit. He's the peacemaker, even by his own blood on the cross. He is the whole kit and caboodle, the pleiramo, full ship. All right. Well, the big elephant maybe that you might find as we finish the reading was verse 23. And verse 23 says something in the nature of continuing in the faith. Did you catch that? If you continue, if indeed you continue in the faith. And some would read that and say, oh, no, it looks like, you know, can, can we fall away from faith? There's always these questions about that. The way Paul writes it, he's, he's saying, look, and we'll see this later in the next chapter or two, that he actually is pretty convinced, convinced that they're going to stay. 
walking with Jesus. They're going to they're stay walking with Jesus. But there is something here that I want to lean on for just a moment, and that is our responsibility of faith. Our responsibility. That actually, when we say yes to Jesus, we want to continue walking in a manner worthy. doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly, but there's a responsibility to walk in step with the Spirit. We don't just say yes to Jesus and just raise our hand, then we just kind of forget about it and go on in our life. We actually have now started a new way to live. So, yes, he gave us the transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of, kingdom of light, the kingdom of his dear son, by faith. But now we get to walk by faith in a manner worthy. And I like what one scholar said it this way. He said, Paul does not teach sort of this once saved, always saved kind of faith or religion. And nor does he understand faith as a once and for all decision that we forget about. In fact, apostasy, that is the loss of faith, imperils one's relationship with God and the community that has covenanted with God in salvation the church. So there's a sense of individual responsibility and the church family responsibility to keep walking. Well, how do we do that? We encourage one another. We meet together. We pray for one another. We confess our sin to one another. This is how we keep walking in a manner of faith. It's individual and it's community. Both are important and we have a responsibility. Another scholar wrote this. Paul seems to be acknowledging that the Colossian people are at a crossroads. They, they, they must refuse to observe the rules and traditions of false teachers, which threaten to lead them in the wrong direction. They, ought, they have to remember that faith in Christ is not simply a way of entering the kingdom. So it's not just the doorway. It is the way of life within the kingdom. Jesus was our entry point. He transferred us. But by walking in faith, we actually learn to live the kingdom way. He was our entry point and our mentor, if you will, or the one walking us through. When he says, follow me, that's what he means. So he's our entry point and the way that we live. So the question is for all of us. Here's the big question today. Do you want to continue in faith? Are you going to continue? Jesus would use the words, take up your cross daily and follow me. There's this choice that we make. Do, is today, is Jesus enough? And are we going to follow him today? It's a decision that, that he's asking you to make. Am I Lord or just a, a really good teacher that had a rough end? Or is he God in the flesh? These are the decisions. Are we going to follow Jesus? Are we going to continue in faith? The prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament, this is you know, a statement that may have not have made as much sense when, when, when Habakkuk first said it, but he writes, the righteous will live by faith almost prophetic, that the righteous will live by faith. And that's a choice that you make to live by faith. That's your choice today. You and I, we have to choose that. Jesus is the preeminent. We're going to find out more and more. He's everything we need. He's the whole ship together. He's the fullness. We don't need anything else. None of these other philosophies or, or, or salad isms out there. Even in our day, we have a bunch of those isms. Jesus is everything, and we have a choice. Do we follow him today? Do we keep picking up our cross and following him and his way and learning his way. So Jesus is our savior and our way maker. He's the one who saves us, but he's also the one that teaches us the way to live, to be the new humans that he called us to be, both now and the not yet. The things that we learn from Jesus, our savior and way maker now, echo into new heavens and new earth. We are practicing the kingdom ways right now. Love, joy, peace, patience, all of those things. 
So he's the preeminent one, and he's our Savior and way maker. The deal is, if you say yes to Jesus, that affects everything in your life. And we're going to see this in this letter. When you say yes to Jesus, it affects your home. It affects your relationships. It affects your recreation. It even affects your work. It affects your, your role in the community, your neighborhood. Following Jesus touches every part because he is in all and through all. And we'll see this over and over in the book of Colossians. So glad you guys were here for week one. Hope you can stick with us the rest because this letter is condensed, but it's good. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for being uh, the God who loves us so much that you sent your son Jesus to be the savior and the way maker. That it's not just that he gave us entry by faith into the kingdom, your kingdom, Father, but he's the way maker to show us the way, the new way to be human, both now and not yet. Father, help us embrace that reality and be willing to share that hope with anybody who, who might ask us. Father, help us to be about your mission this week, and may we love you more than we could, we could even dream because you love us more than we could possibly imagine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.